Good morning, church. It is so very good to see you this morning. I, one of the things that I really appreciate about McDermott Road, one of the things that I love about this congregation is the fact that you make it possible for us every year to have youth and children's interns, that you invest so much as a congregation that our shepherds and our youth and family team are so intentional about investing in our young people. Our interns this summer have just been fantastic. I'm sure going to miss them. They've been a wonderful blessing, Uh, but this congregation continues to bless our young people and bless our families, so thank you for doing that. That's one of the things that I love and appreciate so very much about this congregation. One of the things, I don't know if you know this or not or if you care about this or not, but one of the things I think about when I'm preaching and one of the ways that I like to preach is that I like to preach what's called expository sermons as opposed to topical sermons. So kind of sermons can be divided into those two categories, maybe others, but, but typically sermons are either expository or they're topical. And a topical sermon is where you take a topic and you sort of explore everything scripture has to say about that topic. So you'll take verses from the Old Testament or the New Testament, verses from here and verses from there, and you'll sort of try to tie together all of these different verses from throughout scripture and try to say, this is what the Bible says on this particular topic. Expository preaching, on the other hand, is where you take a, a single passage, typically. You take one passage and you say, here's the context of this passage, here's what this passage means, here's what the original audience might have thought about this passage, and here's how it applies to us today. Now, the reason I I do that most of the time, sometimes I'll preach a, a topical sermon as opposed to an expository one, but I tend to preach expository sermons for two reasons. One is that I I know that I have unintentionally misrepresented scripture by preaching topical sermons. It's really easy when you take a verse from this context and a verse from a different context and you tie the two verses together to accidentally or unintentionally misrepresent what scripture is actually saying. You've seen that happen, haven't you? Even outside of scripture, you've seen people take someone out of context And they'll take a quote from over here and a quote from over there and they'll sort of tie different quotes together and they will misrepresent what the person was actually saying because they're not appreciating the the context from which those statements came, right? And, And I know, I know that I have unintentionally done that by tying together different scriptures from different contexts and put them together as if that's what God was saying on that topic. And so I want to avoid that. I want to avoid unintentionally misrepresenting what scripture says on a certain topic. And I feel like one of the best ways to avoid that is to preach a a passage of scripture and say, here's what this passage means and here's how it applies to us. But but a second reason that I I tend to steer away from topical sermons is that I, I want to make sure that I don't teach or reinforce bad Bible study habits. I grew up reading the Bible as if it was a kind of a collection, just kind of a hodgepodge of of various verses. And I tended to think about the Bible in terms of lots and lots of verses. And so the way I would study the Bible, and maybe you grew up doing the same thing, the way I would study the Bible is that I would go searching 
gathering different verses. And I would go and look for verses that proved a certain point, go, go and find verses that made me feel good or encouraged me, kind of read along until I found a verse that suited my fancy and made me feel good, and I would highlight that verse. Or, or I would go to Scripture and I would try to find verses that I could use as ammunition against somebody else and say, see there, you're wrong. This verse says that you're wrong. And I would read the Bible as if it were a collection of verses. We might be surprised to know that the Bible didn't always have verse numbers. Did you know that? The Bible didn't always have verse numbers. In fact, it wasn't until about 1500 that verse numbers began to be put in the Bible. So for over a thousand years, for over a thousand years, when Christians read the Bible, they didn't have little verse numbers. So six or seven hundred years ago, if you had said John 3.16, they would have had no idea what you were talking about. You said Acts 2.38, they would not know what you're talking about. You could quote those words and they might know what you're talking about, but they wouldn't think about it the way we have a tendency to think about it. Now, I, I like the fact that we have verse numbers because it makes it a whole lot easier to find something in your Bible, doesn't it? But, but we, we have to avoid thinking of the Bible as if it's a whole lot of verses that are just kind of a a grab bag that you can just kind of reach in and find a verse that suits, suits what you need. As if you're just reaching into the Bible to find a verse that proves a point or makes you feel good or find a verse that proves someone else wrong. Because if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we don't appreciate the context. And when I say context, I mean a whole lot more than just what's the verse in front of it and what's the verse behind it. I mean, what was the, what was the author saying? What, what was going on? Who was the author? What was he talking about? What was he trying to prove so that we're not misusing scripture? Because I, I don't know about you, but I know I'm guilty of this. I know I'm guilty of misusing scripture, of using scripture to try to prove points that the original context and the original author, that the spirit who was carrying along these authors that the Spirit of God wasn't trying to prove, and I'm trying to prove something different than what the Spirit was trying to prove. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this, this month in, in our sermon series, we're going to look at some different verses of Scripture and talk about how they're often taken out of context, they're, they're kind of twisted a little bit, they're kind of used to prove a point that the author wasn't trying to make. But, but most importantly, we're going to look at them and say, what does this what does this really say? Not just what does it not say. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about what it does it not say. I want to talk about what does it say? What hope does it bring me? And most importantly, how does this point to Jesus? Because I believe that when you take scripture in context, it almost always or always points to Jesus. When you take scripture in context, it points to Jesus. When I take scripture out of context, I try to make it about me. How about you? When we take scripture out of context, we tend to try to make it about ourselves. But when we take scripture in context, it's almost always about Jesus. And that's, that's our goal, isn't it? To fix our eyes on Jesus. So we're going to look at some passages of scripture, and we're going to talk about what does this mean, and how does this help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Our first verse that we're going to look at today is from Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. It might be a, a verse you're familiar with. It's a wonderful verse. In fact, Jeremiah 
Here's my encouragement. You know me. Go home and read the book. You might not read all of Jeremiah today, but, but go home and, and read as much of Jeremiah as you can this week and just really appreciate what this book is saying, what the prophet Jeremiah was saying. Verse 20, or chapter 29, verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, again... It's a great passage of scripture. It's a great verse. And I, I love the fact that we, we have this stenciled on our walls or we have it plastered on coffee mugs or on bumper stickers. It's good, but it's even better when we take it in context. What, what we tend to do with this verse, what I hear done a lot with this verse is for us to pull it out of its context and make it about God having a very specific plan for specific individuals to say God has a specific plan for your career, God has a specific plan for your wealth, God has a specific plan for your health, and God's going to do all of these great things in your future for you personally. Now, we're going to talk about some of the problems with that, but but here's kind of a, a general principle that I want us to think about this morning as we think about this passage and so many others, that a promise taken out of context can be as deceiving as a lie. A promise taken out of context can be as deceiving as a lie. Let me give you an example, okay? If, If you overhear me tell my son, I will pay for your college, okay? Those are my words, I will pay for your college, Now, if you record me and you play that back and say, ha, see, Wes, you said you'll play for my college. Stop. I didn't say I'd pay for your college. Or if you play that to a bunch of people and said, Wes said he's going to pay for everyone's college. I didn't say that. I told my son in a very specific context. In fact, don't even tell my son I told him I'd pay for his college. But (laughs) I told my son in a very specific context, I'll pay for your college. Now, if you take me out of context and you start applying that promise to other people in other contexts, you are going to be deceiving them. We have to be so very careful that we don't take God out of context and use a promise to make people believe something that isn't true. It's one thing to make somebody believe something that isn't true, but it's worse when we attach God's name to it. See, too many times we've told people, oh, God has big plans for you. God has tremendous things. You're going to have a great career. You're going to have great relationships. You're going to get married. You're going to have children. Wonderful things are coming. You're going to have good health. You're going to be healthy and strong and prosperous. You're going to have lots of money. And then sometimes, guess what? That doesn't happen. And so many times people say, why didn't God keep his promise? When you take a promise out of context, it can be as deceiving as a lie, especially when you're taking God's promises out of context. You're attaching God's name to it, and you're saying God is promising you these very specific earthly, worldly promises. Hold on. Wait a second. Is that what God really said? Did God really make us those promises? Did God say these things to us? How does this apply to us? 
This passage applies to us tremendously, but we need to think about how does it apply to us. In order to understand that, think about who is Jeremiah. So let's think about Jeremiah for a second. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied about 600 years before Jesus. And, and he lived in the, in the nation of Judah, and Babylon was becoming strong and powerful. Babylon was this, this huge threat that was, that was going to destroy Judah. And Jeremiah prophesied to the people of his generation, and he had basically two messages, neither of which the people liked. One was, repent of your sins. Nobody likes to hear that, do they? Repent of your sins. Stop doing those things that you love doing. Stop doing those things. Repent of your sins and surrender to your enemies. Nobody likes that message. Surrender to your enemies that the die has already been cast. This is what's going to happen. Babylon is going to conquer us. And the less you fight against it, the better it will be for you. So it'd be better if you just surrender to your enemies. Now, of course, the people didn't like that, and there were false prophets who were giving the people false hope. That's what false prophets do so many times. False prophets give people false hope. And, and the false prophets came along, and they said, no, 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 don't listen to Jeremiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Babylon's not going to conquer us. They're not going to win. God's on our side. We can't lose. Let's fight against them. Let's resist Babylon. Let, let's, let's stand strong. We're not going to fall. Nothing bad's going to happen. Nothing to see here. And then, of course, in 605 B.C., the, the Babylonians carried off the first wave of captives to Babylon, including guys you know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were carried off into captivity. But still, the people wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah kept saying, repent of your sins. This is why this is happening, because of your sins. So you need to repent, and you need to stop resisting this punishment. Because when you're resisting this punishment, you're resisting God. Surrender. Because this is what's going to happen. And, and, and the people still listen to the false prophets because people like false hope. And they continue to listen to the false prophets who kept giving them false hope even after the first wave of exiles was taken away. And then about eight years later, another wave of captives, including the king and his family and thousands of Jews were carried off into captivity. And guess what the false prophets kept doing? Kept giving their false hope kept giving people cheap promises and saying, oh no, this isn't going to last very long. Everybody's coming back soon. Don't you worry. It's all going to be okay. Don't worry. Everybody's coming back. This isn't going to last very long. And Jeremiah kept saying, stop. Stop giving the people false hope. Even in Babylon, even the captives that were taken off into Babylon, they thought, oh, this isn't going to last very long. This is going to be over before you know it. We're going to be going back to Jerusalem. Everything's going to be okay because they continued to listen to false prophets who were giving them cheap promises and false hope. And so eventually Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles, and here's what he says in chapter 29 and verse 4. This is the context of the verse we know so well, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Jeremiah writes this letter, and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but... Seek the welfare of the city 
where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is reality. And sometimes we get into a mode of thinking where we're denying reality. And the false prophets were encouraging them to deny reality. They were giving them cheap promises and false hope to say, this isn't, this isn't going to last. This isn't your new reality. You're going back to Jerusalem. Well, 11 years after they went into captivity, things would get even worse. Jerusalem would be burned to the ground. The temple, the walls, everything would be gone. And these false prophets kept saying during that time, we're going back home, don't you worry, don't, don't, don't settle in, just, just kind of hang out for a little bit because this is just going to be temporary. Jeremiah writes and says, no, no, don't listen to that nonsense. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, settle in because this is your new home. Seek the welfare of this city. Seek the welfare of Babylon because this is your new home for the foreseeable future for the next 70 years until there is a time of Sabbath rest, 70 years, this is going to be your new reality, which means, by the way, which means that most of the people to whom Jeremiah was writing, what would be their future? They would die as exiles in Babylon. But Jeremiah says, this is reality. This is what I told you was going to happen. This is what I keep telling you is happening. Stop listening to false prophets who are giving you cheap promises and false hope. Look at verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Why was it important that they accept this reality? This is what's happening. One, so that they didn't have false hope about we're going home next year, or we're going home the year after that, or we're going home the year after that. So that they settled in and built houses and planted gardens, but also so that they learned to repent of their sins. I mean, imagine if you were disciplining your child and you sent your child to their room. You said, go to your room. You're grounded until you learn your lesson. And they went in their room and they say, I don't believe in this discipline. This isn't really happening. I'm not really being disciplined. I wanted to come in here. I'm only going to be here in a few, for a few minutes. I'm just kind of hanging out for a little bit. I can leave whenever I want. You say, no, wake up. This is happening. You're being punished. And you have to accept that in order for you to learn your lesson. It wouldn't do that child any good if their friends kept telling them, oh, don't worry about it. Your dad won't. Your mom won't. They won't make you last the whole time. They say you're going to be grounded for a long time, but they'll they'll give up. They'll let you out early. You'll You'll get out early on good behavior. Don't worry about it. Just kind of hang out for a few minutes. Everything's going to be okay. You tell that friend, stop. You're giving them false hope, and they're not going to learn their lesson. Jeremiah spent his entire ministry trying to dispel false hope, trying to undermine cheap promises. So it's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic that we take words from Jeremiah's letter out of context to tell people, oh, 
do whatever you want to, live however you want to. God is going to give you a great career. He's going to give you great relationships. He's going to give you lots of money. You're going to have good health. God has all of these specific plans for your specific life. Whoa, hold on. Number one, that might not be the case. Number two, number two, we have to understand how is it that God is working in our lives. What is God going to do for us and with us and in us? And what should be my response? If all we're listening to is the, the easy stuff, the stuff that says, oh God, you might be having a bad day today, but tomorrow, oh, you're going to get good news. You're going to have lots of money. Your career is going to skyrocket. If that's all we're listening to, because we like that sort of thing, it makes us feel good Sometimes we don't learn or embrace the hard lessons. And Jeremiah is a book about the hard lessons, about repenting of sin, turning to God, trusting in him, and even accepting discipline when it comes. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, Jeremiah continues to give the people hope, real hope. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now, do you see the difference? The false prophets gave false hope. But Jeremiah gave true, genuine hope. Because hope, hope is not wishful thinking. False hope is wishful thinking. And we're, we're really good at wishful thinking, aren't we? We're really good at just saying, oh, maybe next week or next month or next year, these great, wonderful, awesome, terrific things are going to happen. And maybe they will. I don't mean to dispel that. Maybe they will. But God didn't promise that. God didn't promise that. But real hope, genuine hope, is based on a confidence about reality, about truth, and God says to the people, not to any one specific Jewish person in exile, and not even actually to that generation, but to the Jewish people as a whole, saying, I will bring, you know, you know I don't like the word you, right? It's, it's y'all. I'll bring y'all back from exile. I'll bring y'all back. And by y'all, he doesn't even mean that generation. He means the next generation, future generations of the people of Israel. He would bring back to Jerusalem and bless them and take care of them and save them and deliver them from exile. This is reality. This is truth. That's a truth you can take to the bank. That's a truth that will give you true, genuine hope as, to the, as opposed to the cheap promises and false hope that the false prophets kept peddling. But so often we, we take this verse out of its context and we ironically use it the same way that the false prophets were using the promises of God in Jeremiah's time to give people a false hope. I, I don't know what tomorrow holds for you or the next day, or the next month, or the next year. I, I hope, I, wishful thinking, it could be, it could be all kinds of wonderful things. It could be all kinds of wonderful things. But I'm not going to attach God's name to that and promise you these things in the name of God because that's what the false prophets did in order to give people false hope by giving them cheap promises. 
But Jeremiah comes to them not with a cheap promise, but with a promise that was hard to swallow. A promise that said 70 years from now, future generations of the Jewish people will be brought back because God has plans for y'all. God has plans for his people. God's going to do big things. And that's a hope that they could take to the bank. That's a hope that was based in reality. Look at verse 12. Then, at that point, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. After the 70 years of Sabbath rest, God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to gather my people, and my people are going to repent of their sins. That's why they went into exile in the first place. And God says, when you come back, your hearts are going to be changed. You're going to, you're going to seek me with all of your heart. Your hearts are going to be new, and you're going to love me and be devoted to me. I'm going to restore you and bless you and forgive you. Throughout Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to give you a king. A king, a branch from the family tree of David. I'm going to make a new covenant with you, Jeremiah 31. I'm going to give you a new heart and make a new covenant with you. See, this is God's plan for the Jewish people collectively. And do you see how this promise that God makes to the Jewish people collectively to say, I'm not done with y'all. I'm not done with y'all. I'm disciplining you. You're getting a 70-year timeout. Many of you are going to die here in exile. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. You're not going home next week. You're not going home next month. You're not going home in your lifetime. But I'm not done with you as a people. And I'm going to bring the Jewish people back home. And I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring through you a king, a branch from the family tree of David. I'm, I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Do you see how the promises that God gives to his people through Jeremiah point to Jesus? Because it's all about Jesus. It's not about cheap promises. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I understand that when we're hurting, when we're suffering, the idea that tomorrow or the next day or the next day our suffering might get better and those things might go away, it doesn't seem like a cheap promise. It seems like a wonderful promise. But let's not sell the promises of God that are so big and so grand and so wonderful and about Jesus for my own personal health and wealth and prosperity. It's so much more than that. It's not God promising me tomorrow, Wes, things are going to be better. It's God promising the Jewish people, I'm going to use you to change everything. Through you and through the plans I have for you, through the promises I've made to you, I'm going to bring you home and through you, I'm going to restore everything. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to change everything. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all nations of mankind. In fact, isn't that what God promised from the very beginning with Abraham? That through your seed, I will bless all nations of mankind. And that's what he's telling the people of Judah, he's saying, I'm not done with you as a people. I'm going to bring you home, and I'm going to bless you. Here's what I want us to take away, that context determines whether a promise gives false hope or genuine hope. 
context determines whether a promise brings false hope or genuine hope. If we take any promise of Scripture out of context, John 3.16, or any other promise of Scripture, and we take it out of its context, it can give us false hope, a false sense of security. Oh, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be good. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. But, but that's no substitute for the genuine hope, the true hope that God wants to bring to his people. When we keep it in context, and we understand that, that this promise that God made to Jeremiah, guess what? God kept his promise. Amen? God kept his promise. He brought the people back home. He brought the exiles back home. He gathered his people. He changed their hearts. He gave a new covenant. He brought his king, the branch, the branch of the family tree of David. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And guess what? You and I are the beneficiaries of this promise. We are reaping the benefits right now of the promises that God made to the exiles in Babylon. He said, I'm going to bring you all home, and I'm going to change you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to do some wonderful things. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that, because through those people, through their descendants, he brought Jesus to save us. Those were the plans that God had for the Jewish people. And you are the beneficiaries of that. But it even goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because in a sense, we're still in exile, aren't we? In a sense, we're still in exile. We're still waiting for the Lord. We're still waiting on the full redemption. We're still waiting on the full fulfillment of all of God's promises. And guess what? God has, God is, and God will keep his promises. And it's so much better. It's so much better than just... I got a, a raise, or I got a promotion, or I'm feeling pretty good today. It's so much better than that. Oh, yes, does God work in those ways? Sure, he does. Does God bless us in those ways? Sure, he does. But God's plan for us is cosmic. God's plan for us is so much bigger than our own personal lives. And it's that where we anchor our hope, because we know that someday Jesus is coming back. Someday, all things will be made new. Someday, death will be no more. These are the promises that give us hope. I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. I don't know if it's going to be seven years or 70 years or 700 years or 7,000 years between now and then, but I know that God has, God is, and God will keep his promises. This is genuine hope. This is true hope. I don't want to make anybody promises that will set them up for disappointment. But if your hope is anchored in the gospel, you will never be disappointed. If your hope is anchored in the fact that God used the Jewish people to bring his son into the world so that he might save and redeem both Jews and Gentiles, that your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, that he has a home prepared for you, if this is where your hope is anchored, you will never be disappointed. But if you allow cheap promises and false hope to convince you that tomorrow things are going to be great and you're going to get a raise or your health is going to be great, then you're setting yourself up for potential disappointment. 
And God isn't setting you up for disappointment. God wants you to have genuine hope. And so I hope that we will anchor our hope in the good news of Jesus Christ because God has and God is and God will keep his promises. That's what we're saying when we're baptized into Jesus, isn't it? We're saying we believe. We believe that God has kept his promises to the Jewish people by bringing his son into the world, that God is keeping his promise right now, and that God will in the future keep his promises. And we're trusting him that he will be a faithful God when we're baptized into Christ. No matter how long our exile lasts, no matter how long it is until all things are made new, no matter how long it is until death is no more, no matter how long it is until the resurrection, we are saying, I trust you, Lord, to keep your promises. So if there's somebody this morning and you're ready to commit yourself to trusting in him, to anchor your hope in the good news of Jesus, or if you just need prayers or encouragement, we're here to help you in any way we can. Now's a great opportunity. Come forward as we stand and sing.